Welcome to the Gate 7 International Podcast, your official English source for Olympiakos FC and Greek Super League football, as well as the Greek national team. I am Peter Thompson, here with Aristides Boulubasis and Lambros Sirmos. We are also here with a wonderful special guest today, George Tizonis, the author of Achieving the Impossible, the Remarkable Story of Greece's Euro 2004 Victory. George, I just want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on, and we're all really excited to have a little discussion about one of the most amazing miracles in Greek sports history. Uh, well, thank you so much. I'm, I'm very excited as well. Um, any chance I get to talk about Euro 2004, um, you know, is always a pleasure. But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a real honor to be able to speak to you and um, to talk about the book and, and just the golden chapter in Greece's sports history. For sure. And before we get into discussing the book, I do have just a couple podcast-related announcements that I'd like to make. I just want to remind people that this Sunday, September 20th, we will be having another special guest, Bob Beans. He is on Twitter at BobBeans83, and he is from Olympiakos English, which is on Twitter at Olympiakos underscore E-N-G. That's Olympiakos with a K. We will be discussing Olympiakos' upcoming Champions League playoff fixtures against Omonia, as well as Olympiakos' game on Friday against Asteras Tripolis in the Super League. After that, we will be having Christian Legas from Hellas Football on for the Sunday, September 27th episode. That discussion will revolve around the first leg of the Ammonia game, as well as match day three of the Super League. You can follow Christian on Twitter, at Christian Legas with two Gs. Additionally, we would like to say thank you again to our sponsors, Piraeus International, your one-stop shop for any and all shipping needs both to and from Greece. Give our friends a call at 410-675-4696 or visit their website at www.piraeusintl.com, spelled like the port in Greece to see all the services they offer for shipping in and out of Greece. We've gotten some questions about regulations when shipping cars. They are experts on all regulations surrounding cars, trucks, boats, and large equipment that you may need to ship over there. Give them a call or send an email to sales at PiraeusINTL.com. All right. Thank you so much for that, Peter. Now, before we kind of jump into the details of the book and the content, uh, George, we wanted to ask you a question, you know, uh, can you explain for our listeners your background, give us a little background about what you do now, and then your, as well as your inspiration for writing the book? Sure. Um, so I've been a freelance um, football writer for about 20 years, um, just really heavily focused usually on, on Greek football, um, whether it's the Greek Super League, uh, national team, um, you know, it's pretty much run the gamut, it's just stories for, of Greek players or or clubs. Um, I've also, I've written, uh, and some of those articles have appeared in 442 um, and FIFA publications as well. So always trying to highlight, you know, the good that Greek football has. Um, as far as the book goes, the inspiration was really that there's such a lack of English language coverage of this just amazing sporting success. And, um, you know, uh, three years ago, I was just kind of you know, looking up some Euro 2004 things on the computer um, and, and really realized just the dearth of English language material on this. You know, there's a few articles here and there, you know, 
but as as far as anything in depth, um, it's just it's just not there. I mean, there's such very little out there as far as um, covering this tournament. I mean, and then this um, amazing run by Greece in English. So um, I basically just decided to jot down a few notes and see where it would take me at putting something together, and it ended up turning into you know um, a chapter, and then a chapter turned into two, and all of a sudden I realized that you know maybe I could I could do this. Um, so. Um, yeah, but, but the, the inspiration was, you know, for any of us that lived through that tournament, it was such a special time, such a, such a historic run. And I just thought that, you know, somebody's got to write this. And for lack of a better writer, I guess I would do it since um, nobody else had yet. So, so that was really the, the main driving force. Yeah, and it definitely brought back a lot of memories and emotions for me, especially. Uh, I know my co-hosts are a little bit younger and might not remember it quite as well. Uh, Peter, this might have been even before he started following anything related to Greek soccer. He hadn't met Lambo yeah. yet. <laughs> exactly. <been> yeah. <laughs> but I, I know for me, old. it was a lot of emotions and uh, a lot of memories from when I was in Galimno when the whole thing happened. I was in Galimno for the entire tournament and watched everything from the same restaurant every night while getting my waffle with ice cream. That was a, uh, you know, our, it became our little tradition, our ritual. And the one time I didn't get it, like I mentioned to you kind of off screen was yeah. when we lost to Russia. So. <laughs> oh, unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of, lot of great memories. And uh, I mean, you have a lot of great behind the scenes, real behind the curtain information here. What was it? Was it difficult to collect that inter, uh, the information? And uh, a question that we got from social media from OliFan1925: Were the players relatively approachable about this? Um, let's see. Let's, I'd say that um, on the whole, it was probably mixed. You know, they, and, and again, I'm I'm a pretty much an unknown writer. So um, you know, you're just having this random guy contact you on you know wherever I could find. I've got a couple connections in Greece, but nothing that you know, nothing to. To really um, hang my hat on too much so um, you know it, there was some that were really warm and you know very quick to respond back and be interested there were some that took a little bit of you know a little bit of pressure I guess a little bit of you know communication back and forth uh, to convince them a couple journalists and you know um, some family actually that you know who knew somebody who knew somebody as as things sometimes happen uh, in Greece. But um, you know the ones that did respond, you know, and I spoke to about you know about a third of the players. I mean they were they were just amazing. You know they they were they were so willing to talk and share their stories. And um, you know I I can't say anything bad about it. It was an amazing experience to be able to sit there and listen to, for instance, you know, Katsuranis was talking about what it felt like in the bus on the way to the stadium, mm -hmm. um, you know, on the day of the final. And just, you know, to, to be brought into a situation like that and just to kind of hear him talk about it and with the passion that he had, you know, um, to hear about Topalidis, um, you know, and some of his behind-the-scenes information about Otto Rahagil. Again, that was, you know, it was, I, was, I was just blessed to be able to talk to these, you know, um, sportsmen, these amazing coaches, and to, to kind of, you know, get get the kind of behind the scenes things that you know we don't really see when we're just watching the matches or, or following along um you know i will say that there was journalists in greece were incredibly helpful you know i've talked to some some superb ones sotiris triandafilo is a, is, a, is a major sports writer there um costas vernikos one of the commentators for the tournament um, for greek tv 
just just you know, I, I got chills every time I would talk to him and he would relay some of his, you know, stories commentating on these matches. But as far as the players go, the ones that, you know, I got a little bit further along in the, you know, talking about if they would be willing to interview and whatnot, they, they were just, I, I, I can't just express how, how blessed I was to be able to talk to them. They were fantastic. Mm-hmm. I, I was just interested as well. Obviously, I guess there would... I don't know how many of the people that you interviewed spoke English. Like, obviously, some of the Greek players that you interviewed played in England for some period of time. But I assume there's that sort of language hurdle as well. And I assume some of the transcripts that you wrote in the book were probably translated back and forth, too. Yeah, everything was in Greek. All the interviews um, oh, really? place, okay. you know, in Greek. Um, so everything had to be um, translated, transcribed uh, into English. Um, you know, my Greek is not of the highest, highest quality, but, you know, I made sure that, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. It's conversational. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I always made sure I checked uh, with people that spoke better than I did, um, you know, if it was accurate or not. So, I, you know, I think we got it right. I think, you know, checking things back with the players, they seem to be all happy with um, what we talked about. But, yeah, all, all of those took place in, in Greek. But, you know, they, I'm sure it could have just as easily happened in English, I think. Usually my, when I reached out to them, I reached out in Greek, so. Oh, we just continued right. on from here, but um, yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. I know um, Karaguni spoke a little bit of English because when we saw him play, they played Ecuador in a friendly. I think that was back in 2010, I want to say, or 2009. And he spoke a little bit of English when we met him there. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think um, there's Katsuranis, I think Dabizas, obviously, um, the players that played in England. You know, I think they're very well spoken in uh, in English as well. So um, I don't think it would have been a problem. I was maybe trying to make it just a little bit easier on them so they wouldn't have to, you know, go to, to a different language. Of course. Yeah, and the question I have, where, where did those interviews take place? Did you do this over phone? Did you have to travel to Greece or how, how do you do that? Um, so most of the, all of the interviews actually took over, uh, took place over the phone with the exception of one interview with Fanis Katergenakis, which actually took place on Facebook Messenger. We were just going back and forth with questions and answers. Um, but everything else with the players took place over the, over the phone. Um, I had tried to make arrangements during a trip to Greece to meet up, but it was just too difficult in the summer to, to meet up with, with players. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm USA based, so that, um, that was kind of how it all had to happen. Of course, but I mean, you were able to pull everything together and got a lot of great information, a lot of great insights and behind the scenes stuff. Now, as we kind of jump into the content, uh, you know, going through the history of the national team, both prior to 2004 and after, I felt like I was reading, what I was reading was history. And then what's happening now is history kind of repeating itself because- (laughs) It just seems like there's always been this contention, either whether it's between the players and the coaches, the players and the EPO, or the, and for our listeners that, you know, may not be familiar, the EPO is always, we, it's the Hellenic Football Federation, that's who we're referring to. Um, So there's always some contention between one of those three parties. And, you know, one of the things that in the diaspora we hear all the time is Greeks constantly saying, especially for Greeks in Greece, is that they can't get out of their own way. So do you think that as far as Greek soccer is concerned with respect to the administration at the Hellenic Football Federation, the players and the coaches, have we improved or learned anything in this respect? Or are we kind of still making the same mistakes over and over again? Um, undoubtedly, we're making the same mistakes over and over and over again. 
what should have happened during this period of time between 2001, when Erheigl takes over, and 2014, the end of the Santos era, should have been just a prime example of how to run a national team. And that has to do with a symbiotic relationship between the players, the coaches, and the federation. And when Rahagel took charge, he took charge in a very difficult time period where all three of those parties, there was zero trust between any of them. Um, and he had to build that trust. And he, he built the bridges between himself and the federation, himself and the players, and then everything came together. We've always had talented players. If you look at some of the history that I've talked about, but you know, in other books about Greek football, um, and if you just look at the history of the game, individually, we are able to produce very good players. Um, you know, there's just some, some unbelievable names from the past that, you know, you look at some of the sides that Greece had during the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and you have to wonder how we were not more successful. And the reasons are simple. Um, club uh, loyalties, were put above the national team and the environment that the national team participated in was was just was terrible you know there was no trust between the different clubs uh, the players representing them there was a federation that was not strong enough to be able to appoint the right people um, and then there was you know there's like when Rahagel takes over one of his first um, rules he makes is there's no more hangers-on at away matches. There's no more of these officials that are just kind of coming in left and right, hanging out with the team, talking to people. He wanted nothing of that. He wanted them to focus on the job at hand. And, you know, it's, I guess, it seems now simple looking back that once he takes care of all of that, the team starts to perform, you know. And unfortunately, in the post-2014 period, we fall into the same traps, you know. We, we fall into um, a situation where there's a, a distrust that grows again between the different factions and we lose the teams like the Faroe Islands, you know? So, you know, you're, there's no, you know, you don't have a God-given right in international football anymore to just show up and win any match you want, even if it's a smaller side, you know? There's a lot of teams now who are smaller, who are well-organized, kind of reminiscent of Greece during Euro 2004. Um, the hope is now with uh, John Van Schip that maybe, um, you know, we're taking steps in the right direction. Um, you know, the, the early signs are positive. There seems to be a lot of optimism. Um, I guess I would say that I'm still not wholly convinced, um, but I think that we hopefully are taking steps in the right direction to, to, you know, looking at that template from 2001 to 2014, not necessarily copying every single part of it. You know, different coaches have different tactics and, and sometimes you move on and, and, and you need to change. But as far as the relationship between those three parties goes, I think there's only, there's only one way to do that and to be unified and together. Yeah, and I'd just like to mention there, 2014, I think if I remember correctly, there was a flare-up at the World's Cup right between the practices. I believe it was Maniatis and Savelas got into a, a fight over Paul Kolibiakos or something along those lines. So it may have been bubble, bubbling sort of under the surface, but Santos was able to handle it because of his seniority. But it seemed like that, if, we, if we're looking back now, that was a sign of things to come. Now, uh, you actually addressed a lot of things that we're definitely going to get to later on in the, in the podcast. But one, uh, I wanted to go first kind of to the Hellenic Football Federation. Uh, and we know that in the past that they have a history of putting 
probably more than a normal amount of pressure on a coach. I've discussed with uh, individuals that are fans of other teams, um, other individuals that do some blogging on the side as well for other national teams, and they don't seem to put the same amount of pressure on their coaches that the the Hellenic Football Federation does. And by that, I mean you get a guy like Jordanescu in who coaches for nine games, only has one loss, and leaves because – you know, I didn't know that he left because the pressure being put on him was too high. It had always been explained to me that he was fired, and that was never something I understood because, you know, when, when you have a guy that's in charge for nine games, loses one, you think he's doing a pretty good job. Absolutely. I mean, the pressure in Greece is, is, just, is just overbearing, really. Um, and the Jordanescu um, instance that you mentioned is a prime example of that. Um, coming off of a very successful stint with Romania, uh, you know, and to give him just such little time in the job, it was, you know, was a mistake, I think. But uh, it just goes to show um, what the reality is in Greek football, um, you know, and we must not forget that Otto Rahagil also faced the same pressure uh, when, he's, when he began. When he loses his first two qualifiers against Spain and Ukraine, um, he's instantly under pressure, and that follows him really until they're able to beat Spain much later in the campaign away. Um, you know, that pressure was just constantly right there, and any sort of, um, you know, bad result after those first two matches, he would have been gone. And Yanis um, Topolidis, the assistant coach, um, um, told me a story where that – Rahagil was, they were ready to fire Rahagil um, if they didn't get a positive result in Spain. Um, that uh, if Greece were not able to at least grab a draw, that um, there was Yanis uh, Kirastas, who has passed away since um, he coached Panathinaikos for, um, for a spell. Um, he, was, he was ready to be installed. So, you know, the, the pressure, I can't imagine, is just is so, so huge on some of these coaches. And there's the patience, um, you know, to, to ride a bad result or two is just not there. And, you know, you kind of alluded to it, but, do, I mean, do you think this has really changed? I mean, has any president of the Hellenic Football Federation put as much trust in Rahigo as Gagazis did, as, well, as Gagazis did with him? I mean, the only other one I can think of is Santos, because I remember, I do remember a lot of people calling for Santos's head constantly especially for the, the negative brand of football that people thought he played. Right. But do you think this has really changed even now? No, I don't think so. The only, the only thing right now I wonder is that, you know, we've gone, we've hit rock bottom essentially um, with a couple of campaigns and perhaps, you know, there's really nowhere else to go. We've, we've hired a really well-established manager in Ranieri um, that didn't work out. So now we're left with Van Schip, who is somewhat an unknown manager. Really, I mean, he doesn't have his track record is not is not very large. Um, but um, you know, if you if you pull the trigger immediately now over a bad result, then then you're really you wonder where do we go? You know, you're you can no longer really bank on the fact that this is a team that won the Euro, so you're going to attract maybe a bigger manager. I don't think the money is there really to to go with a really big name or somebody that's really well established. So um, your choice is. A kind of a cheaper foreign option or uh, a Greek manager. Um, so I, I don't think the situation has changed. I, I, but I wonder now if there's just a little, since Van Schip has also started well, a couple of decent results, 
um, then perhaps he's bought himself some time to, to go a little further. George, I have sort of a uh, off-topic question for you, just more in general about world football as a whole. I always found it interesting, especially when I first started watching football, that obviously for national teams, all the players have to have some connection to that country, but the manager can just be anyone hired from another nation. And obviously, you know, Rahigel was a godsend for Greece and so integral in, in the success that they had in Euro 2004. But as, you know, currently there's, there's no real amazing manager. I mean, Benship, I suppose some people are, are hopeful. But do you think that where we are, and you sort of alluded to it, do you think that there is sort of some extra value for a manager being Greek in, in modern day Greek football? I know um, the, some of the talk in the book about the language barrier was made it seem like it would help to have someone who can at least speak Greek. Okay, yeah, I think that a Greek manager can certainly uh, do well with a national team. I don't think there's any reason to believe he can't. Um, you know, I think it comes down to trust. It comes down to allowing a manager to see out his project, to, to put faith in him that, you know, there might be a stumble, there might be a result that doesn't quite go our way, but you're still our guy. During the last qualifying campaign, we installed a Greek manager who had not worked for two and a half years. Now, you know, you can say what you want about that. Maybe that wasn't the right person to, to put in charge at that point. And all of a sudden, he doesn't perform as well. He's out. And then we have this tendency in Greece to go from a Greek manager. Now we're going to go back to a foreign manager, you know, and, and potentially if that individual doesn't do as well, then we go back, you know. Um, so, you know, but I, I don't think there's any reason to think that there's not uh, – you know, uh, a Greek manager can't can't do well with a national team. And, you know, you look at Alketas Panagoulias, for instance, who who led Greece to some of their best successes before the, the 2001 period, you know, to the 1980 European Championships, to the 1994 World Cup, which we know didn't turn out so well, but those were, those were big moments, you know, for Greece up until that point who had never qualified for a major finals. Yeah, and I'd just like to say um, you touched on some of the some main points of a Greek manager and I think I think Greeks have this mentality that foreigners just do things better sometimes and they get less criticism and get more leeway we see that domestically Greek players are chirped by fans immediately once they stop performing and right. another thing is a Greek manager since he's Greek he's going to have some connection to one of the big clubs if he's in any sort of position to be managing the Greek national team, he's going to have to have managed one of the big Greek clubs. And that will, again, lead to comments from fans of large Greek clubs that he's biased against our players. He's biased for those players, you know. So it's really, it's it's a tough position. You need the right person. And I think the last the last Greek manager was not the right person, as you... Yeah, as you, as you perfectly pointed out, um, you know, if, if there's ever an instance where a Greek manager has strong ties or really any affiliation with one of the top Greek sides, it seems to make it mighty difficult for them to, you know, to perform their job, you know, under kind of a calm circumstance. And when Rehagel took over, the, the environment surrounding those top three sides was, was just poisonous. I mean, they this, there was pure vitriol, pure hate between these, these teams. And to think that somebody that was Greek could come into that situation and lead the team in the way that Rahigel did seems now far-fetched. I think you needed somebody that was completely distanced, had no real affiliation with any of those teams to kind of come in and make things, you know, 
make an environment, an atmosphere where players are comfortable to kind of work with each other and not, you know, again, put club loyalties and interests above. Yeah, and you touched on how poisonous you said things were when that period sort of happened. And there was some really interesting stuff in the book about how Rahigel dealt with that. And obviously, I think another reason that things had gotten a little bit better was because more Greek players were finding their way to other teams in Europe. And I think even now we've seen even more of that. If you look at the Greek national team, we have so many players who are playing for European clubs and continuing to be sold to European clubs. We've seen Barkas, the goalkeeper, go to Celtic in Scotland, Chimikas, the left back, to Liverpool, Limnios very recently uh, rumored, I'm not sure if it's official, but rumored to Germany. One thing I was sort of wondering as, as sort of a Greek outsider is as these players come up through the big Greek clubs, you know, maybe your homegrown Pauk player and then you get sold somewhere else, does that club allegiance, would you think that that would stay with players in the sense that rivalries would still come back when these foreign players return to the national team? You know, maybe a Bakasetas coming back, despite he's in Turkey, he still has ties with Greek teams and stuff like that. What, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that would still affect the atmosphere and the environment in the Greek team today? Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that so many players began to start playing abroad was such a positive influence on the Greek national team. And, you know, I really believe that while they might maintain a certain level of club loyalties, those become much less intense as time goes on when they mm -hmm. move abroad. So when you come back to visit with the national team and to train and to play matches, I think, you know, that you're not living in that bubble anymore, you know, where you're living in Athens and Piraeus and you only are hearing about other teams and the fans want you you know, to destroy the other side and not, not to lose the big derby and whatnot. You're no longer in that environment. And there, I believe also, you know, and I think I still believe this holds true a little bit. I think there's a certain level of professionalism in some of the other top leagues in Europe that we still don't have in Greece. And, and that, that affects a player. Well, I also think that um, I've definitely heard stories anecdotally about even in like England, if you think about some of the English teams with all these world-class players, Lampard and Gerrard and Ferdinand and all these, all these players that never really achieved anything. And a lot of the players in even those sides, even in what is regarded as, you know, English Premier League is such so highly regarded in European football. But even at that level, a lot of the players on those teams cited rivalries as an issue as to why those teams didn't achieve as much success. So I think it's, it's very natural to expect, but obviously in Greece it's just, it's unlike anything else. The fans are so much more passionate. The games are so much more heated between the players. And we see that every time that you watch a derby game, especially with the fans in the stands. And, you know, as far as, as developing footballers, perhaps that's not, that's not the best thing, you know? And, and we've seen players that go abroad and, and really do well. Um, you know, they, they seem to be able to play to the level that they, their potential um, calls for and, and I think that, you know, you see it more often now, too. You know, as years pass, more Greek players are going abroad, and I think there's a reason for that. Now, uh, you can't, we've kind of alluded, even though we like to blame, obviously, the Hellenic Football Federation for a lot, which they're at fault for a lot. They're not the only ones that have led to this, to this toxic environment and to a lot of these issues. So I kind of want to go back in time a little bit, back to the 1994 World Cup team. And, you know, back then, I, at the time I was really young, but I remember as I got older, I remember a lot of 
a lot of Greeks pretty much blaming the players directly for this. You know, it was usually it was usually the players that they blamed because they saw what the players did on the field. One thing I remember, of course, was a story from my Bapu. My family's business, the, the nature of the business, my Bapu was at the embassy all the time in DC. And I'll, I'll never forget, he came home furious. He came to my family's house and he was screaming at my dad. Not Adam because my dad did anything wrong, but because he couldn't believe what he saw. And my Babu wasn't a huge follower of, of Greek soccer, but he was a, a Greek patriot. So he loved when Greece did well in the Olympics and major sporting events. So when he was at the embassy, he saw players. He saw Greek national team players there. And they were all smoking, every single one of them. Now, I don't know how many of them were there or if it was the entire team, but Apparently, my Bapu almost got escorted out of the embassy because he was screaming at the players. He found out they were playing, I don't know if it was later that day because he was there in the morning or the, the next day. He was losing his mind, especially he was a Greek that quit smoking. So to him, everybody needed to quit smoking. When he saw players representing Greece doing that in the embassy, he was absolutely disgusted. And then after reading the book, it doesn't really appear that the players really wanted to be there at any, you know, whether it was at the embassy or various social functions. In fact, you, you mentioned in the book that they, you know, um, you know, they kind of protested that they didn't want to, there were, you know, they, they had practice it. They wanted to practice. They wanted things to do, but it was something the Hellenic football federation made them do. Yeah, certainly. And I'm not, uh, I don't know about the, that's great inside info about the smoking. Um, but you know, I think when you look back at that side, it doesn't surprise me to hear something like that. And we can't absolve the players of, of any guilt. You know, certainly you look at the performances on the pitch and they, they were miserable. Yeah. You know, his team's never going to win. They're going to they're gonna do poorly today. There's no way. But for these couple days, he got wrapped up in the belief that we could do it. You know, so we get there. We get our seats early, and he, I'm, I'm seeing this guy that, you know, sometimes doesn't really smile too much, just beaming, you know, that he's there watching Reese's first World Cup game. They give up a goal after two minutes, and, I mean, he just, like, he just wants to, like, leave. He, he can tell almost that what's going to happen. Um, and this was a product, really. You know, these performances were a product of, of just everything happening behind the scenes that you don't need during World Cup preparations. Um, these social events that were curling almost on a nightly basis that players were forced to attend to. And again, you know, the players are on the pitch and they're playing and they're, you know, they're not doing well, obviously. But I think the environment that they were in, you know, did not help. And perhaps, I don't know about the smoking, but maybe they were doing that because they were so fed up about what was going on, you know, uh, around them. So there was all sorts of disputes within the side. Um, Stelios Manolas was a big leader at that point. You know, he was he was getting into it with uh, Alketas Panagulias, the coach, on many occasions. Who you know, there was just it was it was just the the worst way to enter. You know, at up until that point, Greece's biggest ever soccer success. Absolutely, absolutely, and this is something that uh, we're not altogether unfamiliar with. Uh, I mean, absolutely. Because in the last few years, we had Mykonos FC. That was always the joke with the national team, because they were going out and partying constantly and and not training. Now, 
in with respect to player choices, we kind of talked about how player choices were were highly politicized. Now, in in that in that era leading up to the 1994 World Cup, did you find while you were doing your research, uh, you know, particular evidence of of politics with respect to player choices? For example, you know, whether it was loyalties to specific teams going into the national team. Uh, agents getting involved, managers getting involved. I know I've heard all sorts of things from various Greeks all over the place that managers get involved with player selection for the national team. Agents get involved, money changes hands. And I was just kind of curious what you were able to uncover with some of your research. Yeah, I mean, certainly there's always accusations that, you know, outside influences are, are dictating team selection and whatnot. I think the overriding theme for that tournament, for me, looking at the team selection specifically, was, you know, and Panagulias, I think, was a, was a good coach, and he, and he had some great successes with Greece. But I think what it ended up becoming was a kind of reward system for the veteran players. So we had a lot of players at the tail end of their careers, you know, well past their best, that ended up being brought to the USA for that tournament. We had... Other players that were left home, Vasilis Karapialis, an amazingly talented uh, midfielder. Vasilis Chartas, who was just coming into his own and a real, you know, um, up-and-coming player um, in Greece. You saw some of that happening and you um, began to question, okay, you know, we're taking some of these guys that are well into their 30s. We had the oldest team at that World Cup. And it's no surprise, we looked the oldest team at that World Cup, you know? I mean, it... Yep. And so, you know, as far as, you know, any sort of uh, favoring of one team or another, I never really seemed to, to find anything like that. But what I did find was maybe a selection more based on, you know, um, we're going to give you this one final run because you deserve it. You've had a great career, you know, and I think you run into problems when you play some of the big teams uh, um, in world football. And we certainly did. Now, uh, another theme that we've seen, something that's been said both by Van Schip and even previous manager Michael Skibbe, um, how much of, I should say, maybe the chaos or how much of the issues can be attributed to a lot of the strong uh, player personalities and characteristics? Uh, I know this has been a continuous theme. We've, we've seen plenty, especially in the book, some outbursts with players, issues with players, locker room issues. Uh, like I said, you know, previous coaches have mentioned that there are a lot of personalities to manage when it comes to Greece. Uh, player protests with respect to the national team. You referenced when uh, Nikolaidi and and his and you know and company. I'll say they they protested the national team. They didn't play because of um, suspected uh, conspiracies related to the domestic league at the time. Um, so how much of Rahigel's success? was due to him reining in and weeding out disruptive personalities and, you know, coaches like Santos after him, how much of their success is due to them being able to manage personalities? This Greek side that won the Euro had some huge personalities and I'm not saying that in a bad way, but very strong characters. And I think for any side that's going to win something, you need, you need that type of character, but you need to be able to also have those characters fall in line when they need to and, and, and be a unified side. Um, so Rahagel comes in and one of his first moves is to, is to basically ax potentially the biggest Greek name there is at that period of time, Grigoris right. Yorgatos, 
um, who was playing at Inter Milan, you know. And again, this was kind of mm -hmm. before the whole shift of, you know, we had some players playing abroad, but not in the numbers that we did now. And definitely not at sides like Inter Milan. But he saw the play, he saw Jurgato's attitude when he asked him to play in a certain position in training that he was going to play in his first match against um, Finland, which Greece ended up losing 5-1. Jurgatus had an outburst in that training session. And, you know, Rehagel kind of bided his time a little bit and decided to play him. But after he saw his attitude on the pitch, coupled with what he said to him in training, that was it. He never played for Greece again, you know, and this was a huge, huge name. For somebody like Rahagel, this was this was not this was not a big deal. He had been used to managing big personalities throughout his whole career in Germany. Now he did have a preference of working with players that were not star names. I mean, that was just you know he loved sides that were you know role players and you know talented players you know, but not necessarily you know the big name coming in and needing you know certain. Um, you know, kind of special needs and things like that, that um, they, you know, they would be asking for. And, and you saw this in his stint with Bayern Munich, he struggled, you know, because, you know, and, and that, you know, we talk about Mykonos FC, Bayern Munich at that point in the Rahagel um, <laughs> yeah. became Hollywood FC, you know, that was his season where that, um, <laughs> you know, that, that nickname kind of took place. So, um, yeah, certainly, you know, but Rahagel, the thing is, you know, he was able then to, he had such a great way with players of kind of getting to know them. You know, he'd ask about their families. He'd ask about, you know, he'd talk to them about things. So he got, he got them on side, even these stronger personalities, which, you know, you, again, like I said, you need to have, but you need to have them in kind of the way that, you know, they're being, they're willing to work with a guy next to them. So, you know, certainly he was able to do that. And I think, you know, we look at that, we look at maybe what John Van Schip is doing now um, at the national team with, you know, um, Manolas and Papastathopoulos not picked for, for a certain period of time. And yep. I wonder if he's looked at Rahagel's playbook at all, you know, and again, uh, that's just speculation. That's not, you know, who knows, but um, maybe they needed at least just a restart, you know, okay, we need to get some of these guys in. I need to get them into my philosophy and maybe he'll be willing to integrate them back in at some point. And I think it's totally necessary if you, have a player who sort of takes it for granted the whole idea of playing for the Greek national team and doesn't really want to put the team ahead of themselves. It's necessary to, to punish them no matter how talented they are. And I think, yeah, Yorgaktos was an amazing player in his time and very good, but you have to, you have to be very strong about just saying, look, we, there's no one bigger than, than the ethniki here. Um, we got a question on social media as well that, I thought would would be interesting to ask you about just who was the leader of this Euro 2004 Greek team managed by Rahigel. Uh This was asked by Gate7MTL. And there's some speculation that Zagorakis was potentially the leader, but it seems like it was more multidimensional than that after reading through this. Maybe it was it was more a few personalities that were really taking that leadership role. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's very, Zagorakis was obviously an integral part of that team, a big influence um, in the locker room and outside of, you know, of the football pitch. Uh, but yeah, there was, there was leaders to be found in, in, in many areas on the field and off. Um, you know, you look at uh, Nikopoulidis starting from him at the back, players like Trajanos Delas, um, yeah. 
you know, guys that, you know, they were not afraid to raise their voice, but again, you know, and Karagunis, obviously, you know, the passion that he brought to the side, um, you know, they, they were, I think you could find a lot of leaders in that team, you know, but the thing was, you know, like as, you know, another leader who I, who I have a kind of a soft spot for, which I mentioned before, Nikos de Bizas, um, you know, he, they were able to put, you know, their own kind of ego aside and do what was best for the team, whether it was an individual moment on the field or accepting their role, whatever that might have been, you know, if they were a bench player that only came on as a sub or like in the case of the business, not participating at all. Um, you know, so I think leaders were found everywhere in that team. And I think that's what made them so special is that, you know, there was, there was, there was so much good to those players and the way that they worked with each other and fought for each other that it's just so difficult to say that it was one guy that really led them, you know? And I yeah. think, you know, if you look at this as a whole, the influence that Rahagil had as really a father figure to these guys, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's so important when you're, you know, analyzing this success. Absolutely. And the unity that he created amongst all of these deep seated rivalries and, and the politics, it was, it was definitely, definitely a feat in and of itself. Now, funny enough, Rahigo actually then ended up getting accused prior to the, uh, or during, I should say, the World Cup qualification campaign you mentioned in 2002, that he was developing his own clique of players. Uh, you mentioned, you know, um, that he was really weeding out attitudes, but there were a lot of accusations about that. Now, the, the cliques that he was breaking up, we also mentioned there weren't quite as, men, as many Greek players playing abroad. It was mainly the teams in, in Greece that he had to pick from. And he picked primarily players that were from Panathinaikos uh, because he wanted players that were competing, uh, not just competing, but competing at a high level in European competition. So given, given the nature of the, I should say, the crop of players that he had, was sticking to players primarily from Panathinaikos a strategy because he had to do something to kind of cut through these deep-seated rivalries and politics and then find players that could fit in beyond that? Or was he just picking the best players available to him at the time? I mean, Rahagel does have a history. I think it's no secret um, throughout his club career and with a national team. Um, you know, he's got some of favorites, you know, just like any manager will trust a certain player, even when they're not really playing too well, even when, you know, they have a, you know, a dip in form or, or whatnot. I mean, you look at no further than Nikopolidis, who in the entire run-up to Euro 2004 is not playing at club level. Yes, his backup at national team level is starting for Panathinaikos. But Rahagil believed in Nikopolidis, so the, it made no difference that he had no club time. So you might look at that from, you know, a certain angle and be like, that doesn't really make much sense. But that, again, Rahagil, you know, certainly had, you know, he, he did sometimes make decisions that kind of left you scratching your head. But when you find success, you know, usually that, that's not a, as big of an issue. Um, yeah, certainly I think, you know, you, there, there was some um, discussion back in that time period, the fact that he was not picking a lot of Olympiacos players. I mean, I think you have to look at that Panathinaikos side as one that was doing fairly well in Europe at that time period. You know, they, they were going far in competitions and, you know, they, and, and as Rehagel said, you find out 
the quality of players for a national team based on how they do in big pressure games such as European matches. And I think he put so much stock in those European games and saw that there was, you know, a decent crop of players from that team, and he decided to stick with that with that side. Now, Rahigel would have a little bit of a different issue with the current crop of players for Greece, right? We don't have quite as many Greek players playing for Greek Super League teams. It's mainly foreigners. And, and just kind of to uh, support this, there was a poll that was done by our friend Konstantin Levoyanis at Olympiakos EU, and he was actually asking Olympiakos fans if they cared whether or not there were Greeks in the lineup, because there's a strong possibility this year that there might not be any Greeks in the starting lineup. 66%, and he got hundreds of votes in this poll. In this poll, 66% didn't care if Greeks were a part of the team as long as we were winning. Now, there were some that put comments that's, that were a little bit more specific with context. They wanted Greeks in the squad as long as they were an improvement over someone else in the squads. They didn't want Greeks for Greeks' sake. And we saw Katsuranis, that was, he was very vocal this weekend and upset because 30, only 37 of 110 players that played this weekend, not started, just played, right. were Greek. So Rahigo, or I should say in the book, there was uh, this implication that the Super League was a, a, a gateway kind of for the ethniki with, with Panathinaikos. And we've seen that in the past, we've been looking for the Super League to be that gateway for Greek players to get uh, players in the ethniki. So, I mean, do you see this as a problem when there's more Greeks going abroad and less and less Greeks playing in the Super League? Um, I do. I think it, 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 on some level, you know, we, we can't, we can't have everything. So we want players to go abroad to get that experience in the top leagues, to get the professionalism and, and, and to be in environments that are much more competitive than the Greek league. Um, but I guess, you know, in Greece, we, we do seem to have this, we're kind of averse for some reason to, to playing young players, you know, and you've seen the, you know, Greece's coefficient in the early 2000s, the UEFA club coefficient, I mean, at one point we were sixth in Europe. Mm -hmm. You know, we were the sixth rated league in European football, you know, which we've now fallen to around 20, 20th, you know. So we're yep, right, in that area right now, you know. Um, you know, so, you know, we, we've obviously, you know, is that partly due to the fact that, you know, there's some Greeks going abroad on a, on, on a bigger level now. Uh, I'm sure the financial crisis has something to do with that as well. But at the same time, we did not see teams during the financial crisis make a concerted effort to bring young players along, you know. And, uh, you know, I, don't, I won't have the stats in front of me right now or anything like that. However, we saw sides that were still really willing to go by, you know, a foreign player at the expense maybe of a Greek player. And, and I'm not at all advocating that we shouldn't be bringing in foreign talent, you know, for sure. We're not bringing in big names as much as we used to. It's, it's just puzzling. So, yeah, certainly, you know, the, the Super League maybe is not producing at the level that it was for the Ethniki before. But, I mean, we look, at, look around right now and we see, you know, when players get a chance, you know, the, the likes of Yanoulis, Tsimikas, who have either gone on to bigger sides or potentially will be um, soon here, you know, a couple of years ago, they were not getting much playing time. So th once we bring them along and give them a little bit of belief, you know, a lot, in many cases, not all, but many cases, good things happen. Yeah, and we just discussed, actually, our last uh, episode was about the Greek Cup final that happened this past weekend, and we discussed 
what the Greek press would have said about our striker, El Arabi, if his name was Greek. How <laughs> slandered he would have been for how many chances he missed this past weekend right. if his name was Greek. And I think one of, I, I touched on this on the coach aspect, but Greeks seem to have this belief that foreigners tend to do something better. They come from a foreign place. We don't know them as well. And and also, I just think Greek players read the media. It's it's in their face. They understand what fans are saying. And fans are just tough. Like, you make any sort of mistake. And as, as a young player, too, you make any sort of mistake. We, we again, were t- discussing the cup final yesterday and or a few pod or last podcast i should say and the goalkeeper Tsolakis is 17 years old if he had made a mistake that cost olympiakos right. the cup final right. that was probably his career at olympiakos to be honest absolutely with you. so it, it's yeah. so difficult it's so difficult at the top level in greece for young players and the, the problem that i see sometimes too is we have no balance you know we are we're so quick to get so excited about something and we're so quick to get so frustrated, you know? And when we go back to Euro 2004, potentially, we had a man in charge who lost his first match 5-1, okay? So Rahaga loses to Finland 5-1, and he's just unflappable. This is a guy that came from Germany and lost the match 12-0 at one point. So for him, this, yep. was, this was fine, okay? I've seen what I've seen. This wasn't very good. Now I'm going to make these changes to go forward. I mean, imagine if that was a Greek coach and lost 5-1 in his first match. I mean, it, it, he might not have been there for a second. Um, so we do, we do have this kind of quick fire opinion about things if they go well or if they don't. And I think, you know, when we, when we compare now to how things are going with the national team to back then, I think Rahagil, one of his, one of his best traits was that balance, you know, that, that kind of, you know, we, we, we beat Spain in the qualifiers and it's a huge result. And for him, he's not running around the pitch, you know, celebrating like we won the World Cup for him. It's like, okay, we beat Spain. Now we're back in position to qualify. You know, he was, he was there to do a job and, you know, and we could learn from that. So we, we have to be careful with some of these young guys and to make sure that, you know, we kind of bring them along. And, and, and that Zolakis is a great example because, you know, this is a guy that a little shaky early on in that match and then kind of came into his own, you know, and, and, and did well. And, you know, he's a, he's a talent and hopefully he's going to progress into something really great. And we have to be patient for that. He's, you know, 17 years old. Yeah, you, you gave me some flashbacks with the Ninis and then, of course, Fepatsidis and uh, yes. Panayotis Vlakovimos, the oh. Greek Cristiano Ronaldo, the Greek Messi, you know, the yeah. Greek Xavi. Actually, Ninis right. was the Greek Messi as well. You're yes. a lot of, uh, lot of flashbacks with that. But, yeah, I mean, we, we definitely are on both sides of the spectrum here. You know, mm-hmm. we are so quick to – to elevate young players to, you know, almost godlike status when they haven't really even proved anything. Fetfatsidis dribbled around three Israeli players and all of a sudden everyone thought he was going to be, you know, the next Hadzibanayi. So, <laughs> it, you know, that that's we, – we're on both ends of the spectrum and it's definitely, it's definitely something – that's not going to change anytime soon, but it's definitely something we need to manage. Now, um, I wanted to kind of shift the focus a little bit more towards, towards Rahigel. Um was Rahigel? It, it was kind of unclear to me, but was Rahigel first choice, or was it Scala that was at the time before before we went into hiring for the World Cup qualification? Were we going for Rahigel primarily on price, or was Scala really that first choice, and he was kind of out of our league because of his wages? Uh, I guess it depends on who you talk to. But when I talked to Vasilis Gagatsis, who was the president of the Greek Football Federation at that point, 
he was he was very clear that it came down to money um and that you know they only had so much money you know so scala was out of the question but he also uh, went to great pains to suggest that rahagil was his main man the one that he wanted most um you know scala's demands were were uh, over three times what rahagil's were so right. you know right. the, the financial situation that that the epo was in at that point um, it was just not possible you know and um and you know and luckily you know uh, Rahagil was there and willing and you know it was just amazing too to think of you know he had worked at, done his best work at largely provincial sides so for instance his 14 years at Werder Bremen kind of an okay you know mid-size you know team and had never done too much until this guy took hold of us so you know the fact that he kind of just seamlessly fit into this role of of a team that needed to really be built up from scratch and you know he it's just amazing that you know uh it, it really came down to money and and luckily you know we got him i mean we don't know what scala would have done but it would have been hard to to see him uh doing something akin to what rahagil was able to accomplish now part of that you know even though he was taking less money he did have some he did have some uh i should say requirements along with that he you know wanted the house and the car in greece and he wanted the assistant coach. Um, did was the assistant coach prior to him using utilizing Kosadinidis as kind of his on-field translator, or was that or was that something that kind of developed after the fact because maybe he didn't want to have to rely on Kosadinidis being on the pitch? Yeah, certainly. I think the early days of his reign showed him that you know relying on a player who like. You know, Constantinidis was a was a kind of solid pick for him for the first six months or year, but then never really um, was selected again. Um, he might not have known that at that time period, but I think seeing that you're relying on this one player to translate German into Greek for players is probably something that's really unsustainable. Um, he uh, had conversations with Yanis Topolidis after the Finland game. Um, Topolidis basically heard through the grapevine that uh, Rahagil was looking for a manager. He was living in Germany and had coached. Uh, he was a scout at uh, Hertha Berlin. Um, so he, um, he kind of put his name out there. Um, Rahagil ended up calling him up one day. Topolidis thought it was a prank. He didn't believe it, it was Otto Rahagil on the phone. And they talked a little bit. They met. And um, Rahagil said, let's give the England match their next qualifier, which was their last qualifier for the 2002 World Cup. Um, away to England at Old Trafford. He said, let's give it one match and see how, you know, we train with each other, how, how things go. And, you know, we'll see after that. I can't promise you anything. And, you know, the rest is really history. They, their working relationship was just, you know, picture perfect, really. I mean, they, they complemented each other in so many ways. Topolidis was a real video guy, a real uh, an analyst. Um, he had had a lot of experience uh, watching matches throughout Europe, giving scouting reports on players, on clubs. Um, it was perfect for Rahagel. He was a real man manager. He obviously was a tactician as well. But, um, you know, Topolidis could do that end of it, of traveling around and seeing other sides and things like that. And they just, their relationship, they were both really pragmatic. As Topolidis said to me at one point, we knew we were not going to play like Brazil and find success. You know, we knew we didn't have the players of Spain or other sides. So we started to put together a plan that would give us our best chance of success players and tactics that would help us, you know, reach our potential, which, you know, again, he said that, you know, he would have never expected to, to do what they did, 
but the fact that they were both these pragmatists that were kind of willing to look at what they had and, and work from those parts, you know, I think says it all. And, and they just, they became a great pair and they became great friends as well. And it's just so amazing to me. They really did seem just like the perfect match in the sense and the way that Topolides got into the job is, is also just amazing to me. And I think the fact that you got to interview him and get all that information about sort of how their relationship developed and how they delegated roles to each other and just really got together right away. And I think that part of the book to me was just very interesting whenever uh, you discussed how Topolides came in and, and what his role was with the team. Yeah, I was just an... I just thought that I was, was just really in cool. awe of listening to him and, and some of the, the stories that he had, uh, you know, some of the behind the scenes, you know, moments and things, um, you know, that he talked about. And, you know, and, and, and it was amazing because these guys, uh, that was Greece's coaching staff. There was no goalkeeping coach. There was no uh, strength and conditioning. There was, there was nothing else. <laughs> yeah. Two coaches led this team. You know, I can't stress that enough. Unreal. You know, Greece's whole contingent featured about, I think, eight or nine officials, two of which were those coaches. And then, you know, there was a, there was a team doctor and, and a few other that, that I mentioned in the book. But these were the two coaches on the bench. You know, now you'll see, like, you know, 10 guys sitting there, you know, yeah. whatever, you know, data analysts, whatnot. You know, some, some of the stories he had as far as, you know, for instance, just before the match against France, Rahagel and Topolidis shadow boxing with each other, you know, for Rahagel to show them. That, <laughs> I love that part. You know, that... You know, he's France, I'm, I'm Greece. He's like, if I go in, you know, full throttle, we're going to get knocked out. France is Muhammad Ali, you know. Um, but if we kind of pick our moments and, you know, jab here and there and, and dance around a little bit, he's like, we've got a chance. So, you know, just to hear those types of things for me was just like phenomenal. It was just, it was fantastic. And it just a real glimpse into their just real perfect pairing. The, my favorite part with Topalidis was when he was talking about how he, didn't only translate, but he was interpreting everything Rahaibo said in a yes. way that was more Greek. I like this. Is, yeah. That, that was my favorite part, especially when, you know, because Rahaibo would come and say, gentlemen, and Topalides would be like, yeah, you know, which yes. is, for those that may not speak Greek is kids. <laughs> so I, yeah, I that love was, that. It was great. And, you know, he, he connected with the players. I mean, he brought, you know, Rahagil is there, and, and obviously they came very close with him, but he was able to kind of bridge that gap between, you know, uh, maybe – you know, when you're speaking a different language, you come across as just like that, a little bit more official, a little bit more, you know, uh, formal. And, you know, Topolidis was able to kind of just even twist, um, you know, some of those phrases, some of those words to make it a little bit more Greek. And, and, and in the way, as he said, the players wanted to hear. He did not shy away from the fact that it's, you know, occasionally he, he, would, he would kind of say it in just a little bit different manner than Rahagil uh, had said it. But, you know, in the end, they trusted each other and, you know, Rahagil trusted uh, Topolides to get his message across. And I think, you know, the results obviously showed that they were successful in doing that. Do you think Rahigo would have been able to get that real, that unity and that real family atmosphere without Topolides? Oh, it's, it's a, such a tough question because now, you know, if you look into the history of this side, you know, they, they go together so much and they, and it's, it's tough to see, Perhaps, you know, I don't, we obviously don't know all the coaches that were in Greek football at that point and whatnot. You know, it's tough to see maybe um, that level of trust to be built between two people. And I wonder if that has something to do with the fact that, you know, uh, Topolidis lived in Germany, you know, so he was able to relate to Rahagel in that aspect, but he also had the Greek side to him, which was maybe really able to relate to the players 
um, and you know, kind of kind of bring two sides together really seamlessly. So you know, it's it's difficult to, for me to see somebody else in that role. You know, I'm not you know, I'm not counting it out potentially. Who knows? You know, but um, I, I think that you know, it, it would have been difficult to see somebody else being in that role to have had the level and maybe the quality of that you know working relationship that those two had yeah the only reason i bring that up is because i know in you know there were some examples in the book where rahiga was very standoffish or considered very dictatorial in previous clubs and you know that was kind of off-putting to some players so part of me just kind of wondered while i was reading the book had Topalidis not been there to make this seem more personable to the greek players would they have looked at Rahaig was more of a dictator and kind of less of a father figure? Yeah, it's certainly a great question, um, you know, and, and, and who knows, especially with the dynamics um, of that team at that point and, you know, just Greek football in general during that time period. I think if we look at the Rahaig's career, um, you know, over the course of his career, he was able really to unify sides, you know, and he, he certainly had his moments where, you know, he fell out with players, they, certainly, he didn't do, uh, you know, everything in his career perfectly, you, you know, and I think he's the first to admit that when he, when he reflects. However, if you look at the course of his career, you see a lot of success and you see him able to unify sides with, you know, players that were not star names. So Rehagel, you know, he found, he did find success over the course of time. So despite the fact that he did fall out with players, you know, he was a uh, uh, masterful at unifying sides, you know, and I believe that, you know, he, he would have been able to do the same with, with clubs today. And who knows, you know, obviously in different situations, um, you know, what would happen. But, you know, I, I think that that was one of his strengths. And despite the fact that he was always needing control um, of situations and always kind of feeling that he needed to be the final voice, he was certainly somebody that, you know, was willing to work with others if, if he felt that trust. Absolutely. And I think it also helped that part of the him help or him becoming more relatable with the players, he had asked for better training facilities and then he asked for bonuses, uh, you know, for major qualifications and big games, not just once a year. I had no idea that they were that the Hellenic Football Federation was that stingy with the bonuses. Um, I even actually remember that the players said after 2004, the Euro Cup was over and they were victorious. They talked about how they were going to use those bonuses to help pay or help pay for uh, better facilities. So do you think him kind of trying to get all of that in negotiating for the job made the players respect him more? And did we ever, did, uh, did any of those investments to the facilities ever happen? The, for the latter question, we still don't have a, uh, a full-time training uh, facility. So, you know, that's, that's, that's still an, a work in progress even 16 years later. Um, right. For the first part of your question, yeah, undoubtedly that drew the players closer. Rahagel saw some of these things, the, the lack of a proper training uh, pitch, the, the fact that the, the players were treated in such a manner that, you know, the bonuses and things like that were not just commonplace. And I think, he, you know, it was completely foreign to him. You know, he was looking at a certain, he was working um, with a certain level of professionalism abroad in Germany all his career. And I think he expected that's what he would find in Greece. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. But what he did was basically stand up for the rights of those players and for his belief that the only way we're actually gonna properly build this side 
is if we're, you know, giving them incentive. Now it's not just financial incentives, but that's obviously one part of being a footballer, you know, and you know, you want, you need to be treated in, you know, in a certain manner. If you find success at your job, you expect that, you know? So I think he, he undoubtedly, uh, you know, believed that that would help maybe bring the players along a little bit. If they were treated better, you know, they would perform better. And I think, you know, that's certainly something that, you know, we, we look back on and see as you, you see some of these things and you're like, okay, that was something small, something small here, and you put it together. But in reality, those, those are big moments. You know, those, those types of decisions, those types of, um, you know, what you ask for sometimes, you know, that, that, that plays a big role in a player's mind. And it, it gives them, you know, motivation to, to, to play for the national team even more so. And that really one of the major takeaways, especially that I want our listeners to get out of this, is that Heigl, you know, forget how upset maybe you were about his tactics, but the things he did off the field for the team, the things that he did for the players, I mean, that was huge. Had Greece ever had a coach that really had that level of care for the players and that level of care for the state of the team? He wasn't Greek. He was German. You know, his loyalties to Greece were insofar as it was a job to him, right? But it actually seemed like he cared about the state of the players, not just for, for the sake of what he believed the players should have to, to be competitive, but he actually seemed like he cared about them. Uh, there's no question that over the course of time, you know, a decimo happened. You know, these, these two sides really tied together. And so much of that was Rahagel's looking out for, for these individuals and supporting them and, you know, wanting this family unit they created to stay together is what it was it was a family and he did the same thing at some of the club sides where he found most success he knew he had to bring players together the his primary way of doing that was to look out for them to talk to them to show interest in their lives to um, believe in them when things weren't going well when they when their when their form um you know was was bad or they were not being selected consistently both players that were playing in Greece and many abroad we can't forget that some of the guys that were playing abroad at this time period you know Greeks still did not maybe have the best name abroad so and, and, and you know they they were not maybe getting some of the playing time that they were hoping for in the lead up to, to a tournament like Euro 2004 he stuck with them he supported them you know the I remember the business at one point just talking about how like the trust that Rahagel gave to him, you know, helped him so much in getting through some of the um, instances of injury that he had. And, you know, kind of that on the horizon, I'll be able to get back into the side, you know. And this was a guy that, again, I'll go back to it, that did not play at Euro 2004. Rahigel does not select them because of the good job that Capsis and Delos do in the beginning, um, in the first, in the opening match. But he still is a huge Rahigel supporter because, you know, there is a certain level of kind of emotion that, that Rahigel has. And, and, uh, you know, these players connected with that, you know, and, and uh, as much as we talk about Rahagel being German, you know, they say a lot of times at heart he was Greek, you know, he did have that real <laughs> emotional kind of, you know, pull, that kind of passion for the game and for these people, you know, he, he looked at them not as just like, you know, means to an end, he looked at them as family, you know, like, and, and, and yeah, certainly to go back to, yeah, your original point, there is no doubt that, you know, that connection you know, was something that was really, really special. Absolutely. Now, I want to get into the probably the hottest topic for Rahigel, which is the tactics. <laughs> uh, tactically, I mean, I remember my uh, one of my coaches, uh, a trainer of mine who used to be a scout for Olympiacos, 
back when I was in high school or, and just getting into undergrad. And he hated Rahigel. He couldn't stand him. And part of the reason for that was that he hated how ultra-defensive he was. He didn't like it. He, he wanted – he expected Greece to be more free-flowing. Now, we know in retrospect that Rahigel – was not an ultra defensive coach in in Germany. He was considered to be the attack minded coach, and he coached teams that scored for fun. They love to say that he scored for fun, almost like the Guardiola of his time in Germany. Yeah, yeah. and you know, I I think that in in Greece, obviously, I don't have a great memory of the two thousand and two qualification campaign, but. I th it seems like he might have tried that because we did have a lot of goals allowed back then. We weren't – our identity, which is something that we talk about pretty frequently on this podcast with respect to the national team, we didn't have that defensive identity left or yet. And I think uh, you had mentioned in, in the book that we had allowed 19 goals in 10 games uh, in the qualification for that. So we hadn't yet developed that real defensive mindset. He was always an attacking, attack-heavy type of coach before that. Yeah, and if you look at – he takes over um, the, the penultimate qualifier of that campaign, the 2002 World Cup qualifying campaign, and the first match is against Finland away in Helsinki. And he goes with three forwards up front, you know, and we just get played off the park. It's an abysmal performance. Um, we lose 5-1. And I think it was just so he saw what he had to work with for players and the characteristics they had and realized that it's not going to, to work with this group that I have. I'm not going to be able to play in this manner. Um, you know, he was, as much as we talk about him being rigid, he was very flexible, though, in his tactical outlook. So he realized that, well, I want to play offensively and I want to attack. It's, I don't have the parts to be able to do that. I don't have the players to be able to pull that off. So in the next qualifier against England, we see a reshaped side. You know, we play with a libero. We play with a sweeper in Costandinidis at the back with two center backs. So he just completely shifts gears. And that ends up being a real promising performance and one that the team eventually gets built on. Now, while I don't take, you know, issue with people calling Greece defensive or anything like that, certainly we were a defensive side. There's no questioning. I, I urge play, people, if they're able to, to watch back the matches of Euro 2004. I think what you will find is certainly a team that defends and covers extremely well. But you'll also see a team that when they are in possession of the ball, they look to get forward very quickly. They try to play very quick counterattacking football. It, it, this happens in virtually all the matches. There's certainly times against France and the Czechs and Portugal where, you know, you're defending and, and again, they, they took the lead against France with about 20 minutes left. Yes, it was back to the wall defending for that 10 or 15 minutes. But again, we see that a lot in international football when, when a team's holding on to a lead. Um, so I don't, you know, I, I wouldn't say that that was something unique as far as uh, when we watch games at that level. Um, what I think happened over the course of time was Euro 2008 came around after that, and then we were dour ultra ultra defensive we literally began to believe our own myth you know that if we just sit back and we'll we'll stop everything that comes through and at some point we'll get a goal we got goals um at euro 2004 by taking the initiative now we were not free-flowing attacking football but when we did receive the ball we turned and looked up and tried to play forward as quickly as possible whether it was getting the ball out wide whether it was playing quickly through the midfield and if you look at some of those games against portugal and Spain and even France, 
Um, even against the Czechs, uh, as, as like the end of that match in overtime came, we played some pretty good football overall. You know, yeah, there's no way of getting around it. We defended to win that tournament. But I think if you, on, on closer inspection, I think you'll see that we actually, it was not as, you know, en masse as we all maybe have been led to believe that there was a little bit more of a variety to that team. But, you know, uh, Euro 2008 and maybe even the 2010 World Cup, we we did tend to maybe believe that, you know, we could get through by just kind of sitting back. But then we were slow and really, you know, kind of unwilling to get forward as quickly in those tournaments. And that showed. Absolutely. And actually, funny enough, after I finished reading your book, my father and I did rewatch two games. We watched, we rewatched the Czech Republic game and we rewatched the, um, the France game as well. Mm. And I, I mean, I have to tell you, knowing, kind of knowing what I know now and looking at it, with the, I guess, the more technical perspective that I have now, mm. I did see, obviously, his heavy use of wingers. And the work rate, you know, I used to make, I, well, I still make fun of Caristeas a lot, but <laughs> the work rate from Caristeas and Vrizas just nonstop. Those guys could run all day up and down the pitch. You know, the, the, the brilliance, the magisterial brilliance from guys like Tziartas. And you know what? Even Caraguni, who may not have been yes. considered to be the best playmaker at the time. I mean, the stuff that those guys did, and you're absolutely right. Funny enough, we would look at them now and see great passers. We would see great effort. And I still remember the headlines in, from England that it was a disgraceful Euro Cup, and we, they oh. watched a, a team park the bus the whole time, oh, when God. in reality we were looking at one of the most advanced man-marking and defensive systems we had ever seen. Yeah, I, absolutely. And if incredible. you look back at this tournament as well, you know, which I, which I definitely try to do as in-depth as possible. This kind of um, belief that Greece was this ultra-defensive side and, and, and whatnot only really came about after we knocked France out, you know, because it almost seemed like there has yep. to be a reason why Greece is through to the semis, that we have to, you know, create this narrative that, um, oh, you know, yeah. why, and before that, we never, you, you can't really see much about Greece, you know, being so defensive. Yes, you read the match reports, you watch the games, you, you look at what people have said around that time period about them playing Spain, um, you know, and whatnot. And, and, and certainly Spain's going to have more of the ball than we, we have. I, I don't think there's any secret that that's going to happen. Spain is some of the best players in the world and did at that period of time as well. And this was just before Spain was going to embark on their own amazing success story um, over the next, you know, um, you know, the two, Euro 2008, uh, 2010 World Cup, and Euro 2012. You know, this was just just on the verge of that, you know. So Spain had some amazing players. Yeah, but there was periods of time in those tournaments where we really, you know, the opener against Portugal, we played well. You know, you look at that match, you watch the 90 minutes, and, and Portugal really does not deserve to win that game. It's not – we didn't eke it out. We didn't – you know, it wasn't full of controversy or anything like that. I mean, this was a solid performance by a group of players working for each other who were hungry for success who believed in one another and, you know, and, and, and that's what happened, you know? And yeah, I, I remember seeing some of those same headlines and I see them still sometimes and it drives me nuts. Cause I was like, no, that's not, this is not what happens. Not a disgrace. And if anything, this is the beauty of football, you know, to see a mm -hmm. team that's so unfancied, that's not given a chance at all, the ultimate outsiders and they come and do something so magical for me, you know, we've, we've seen, we all love seeing free flowing football. You know, there's, you know, that's, it's beautiful to watch, but, you know, how many times we watch a tournament and it's just, you know, you're in these tense games and you don't get that quality. You get, you get the drama, you know, of, of a nil-nil and, and one goal is going to win it. And, you know, I think, you know, 
to, to speak negatively about a team that, that was able to kind of, you know, rise from the ashes a few years before to, to come into this tournament and do what they did is, is I think, is, is difficult for me to accept that. Uh, likewise. Um, it, I, I always thought it was very disingenuous, uh, yeah. to say the least. Uh, now, uh, kind of uh, bringing it back to Rahigel's tactics, I want to also focus on what uh, we consider to be his off-the-field tactics. You know, things like keeping the players and journalists uh, and the, the Greek officials in separate hotels had no idea. I thought that was genius, you know, because there's so much drama involved with the intermingling of that. I thought the best thing for him to do was insulate them. Uh, things like also deflecting blame off the players constantly. He, you mentioned in the book that he did what he could to deflect outside influences because as we saw, I mean, you know, if I were a player and seeing some of the stuff that's written about Greek players or the Greek national team in media, I would also be super disheartened. So, I mean, just cut that out uh, completely. And then even the direct intervention with the players, not just the Greek players, but with the Hellenic Football Federation, the director of sport, which is just at the time, uh, I'm assuming it was still a political appointee of the, of the, um, the prime minister. Because when Ike had that 100 million euro, or at the, was it 100 million euros in or 100 million dollars converted from Drachmi? I don't exactly remember when the conversion happened, but they had a $100 million debt problem. And when the whole issue started with Nikolaidi making that plan that Tsiartas clearly wasn't a fan of, and then those two went at it, uh, after, after the fans charged the Ike facility, and for Olympiacos fans, the way the, play, the way the fans charged the Ike facility was just like the way the fans did with sporting when we got Podenza. Right. So, and let's put it this way, the Greek players in this incident were hurt way worse than the players were in the sporting incident. A couple of players were actually harmed. And Tsiartas held that against Nikolaidi. And when that happened, Rahaigol, and this was all stuff I wasn't even aware of, Rahaigol intervened. He was getting the director of sport involved, getting the Hellenic Football Federation involved, talking to the players, making sure that Nikolaidi and Tsiartas were still going to be able to play together. I mean, I thought that was incredible. Certainly. I mean, it was, you know, the, the fact that he was able to, to, to be a voice of unity between two individuals who could not stand to be near each other. Um, you know, there was talk before the tournament, there's quotes from both players. I don't know how I'm going to be able to spend time with this individual, like, you know. And there was calls for Rahagel to drop one or both of them, you know. Rahagel, though, I'll go back to this theme of control. He had crafted something special. And I think he knew that, you know. And I'm not saying he had, you know, in his crystal ball he was going to win the Euro. But I, I believe he really felt that he crafted something really, really special with this group of players. And he needed to control that in order to be able to have it untouched by all of this external, you know, kind of chaos that sometimes, you know, was following the team then, but also following just Greek football in general. You know, so you talk about that instance, we talk about, you know, the fact that he wanted just the players in the hotel by themselves because he knew that these players, they were close. They would get along with each other fine. You know, there would be no conflict. And you talk to some of these guys and they were playing Tavli and they were hanging out and drinking coffees with each other. And, you know, of course. you'll see it lead up to other teams like for a tournament and they'll be like, well, you know, it'll come out afterward maybe that, 
you know, we were stuck in this kind of chateau on the outskirts of the city and it was really boring and we didn't have anything to fill the time with. These guys could have done this, you know, like all day long. And maybe they could have done that all day because they were Greek, you know. Um, but at the same time, it was it has something to do with the fact that they certainly, you know, grew to not only become good teammates, but these guys were guys that genuinely liked each other. You'll talk to them, you know, in these interviews, and, and it was just striking to me that they were they were saying how how much they just got on with each other. You know, they they really, really liked each other. And it can't be said enough that Rahagil was you know, he, he provided that foundation, you know. These players didn't necessarily change. A lot of these guys had played with each other before, you know, but there was, there were disputes in the past, you know, that because of where they were playing or, or other things that were happening outside the side. And, you know, Rahagel was able to bring everything together. But, but he did need that control, and that's why it felt like he, he probably wanted to intervene in those situations because he did not want to wreck what he had built. Course. And kind of as we as we begin to wrap up here, we we had two questions for you, uh, based on all the research you've done, kind of what you saw, the trends you saw here. Do you what do you see that the national team is doing right now under Van Chip? What do you see that he's doing that you saw was successful in the 2004 team that you think could lead to success for him now? And what do you see he's doing now that kind of Greek teams in the past fell into? I think one positive that he's done, he is trying to build a core. Now you can say, you know, we can obviously argue like, well, I don't want Bacasetas playing in that role or not, you know, but, but for him, he's trying to build his core, you know, and that's, I think, important. We're all going to have views on this player should be in this position. We should be playing these tactics and stuff like that. You know, there's that, that, that goes for any football fan, but he, I think it really comes down to how a manager is able to build the side that he wants and the side that he envisions that will bring success. Um, you know, and that obviously we can then look back on in hindsight and be like, well, this was good or this was not good. Results came, they didn't come, whatnot. But um, I, I think that one thing that John Van Schip is doing, um, you know, that is kind of akin to what Rahagel did is that same thing. He, he's, he's calling in new players. He's willing to test out, you know, he's being kind of flexible in that regard, but he is kind of also, trying to stick to a core group that he trusts, um, whether that will ultimately lead us down the path towards success, we shall see. One worrying trend, and I guess we'll still have to see if it's an actual trend or not, is I'm, I'm not convinced that this side is maybe as united as it could be. Is Van Ship the man that can bring this group of players together? Now, we probably have different challenges than we did um, when Rahagel took over. We may not have the club dynamics in play as least, at least as you know, to the level that it was back then. Um, but he has a different maybe task in in collecting players from that are playing in different countries on a much bigger level now, um, and trying to bring them back. So then, in the week or two that they're together, you know, they become a team that's formidable that that can that can do well together. I think that's probably his main challenge. Is he the man? We'll see. He's a, he seems like a very positive manager. He tries to put a positive spin on things, um, you know. But I think it's so early right now to tell. If you took Rahagel's reign at the point where Van Ship is right now, you know, I, I think we'd still have questions. You know, is Rahagel doing the right thing? Are these players the right ones that he's calling in? Are we, are, you know, is this going to make sense, you know, to, to do it this way? So, you know, it's so early that I think we just, we owe it to him to give him a chance. 
you know, there's, there's definitely some encouraging signs though. Absolutely. And this is something I think most, especially diaspora Greek fans have asked for is just stop the carousel, give a guy, you know, let him finish the campaign. Just let him, let him do what he can without anybody messing with him, And let's just see what happens. You know, I know, you know, personally, we've, you know, the three of us have all had our opinions mainly negative about Bacasetas, but we are all, the three of us are definitely glad to be proven wrong. If, it, right. if he's what it takes for this national team to succeed, we're absolutely fine with it. And our second question for you was, while you were doing your interviews, while you were gathering all your information and doing your research, what was the most interesting piece of information while you did all this, you know, players you talked to, officials, things that you were reading, what was the most interesting thing you learned during this whole process? Hmm, that's a tough one to narrow it down to one. Um, you can give a couple. I, I suppose, um, you know, something that Karagouni said to me was, was really something I hadn't really thought about as much, you know, because we do tend to think of this team as the collective, right? Um, and at one point, you know, he's, you know, he was speaking really frankly and said, you know, we were a great team. We were, we were, we, we had um, a great deal of teamwork and uh, Rahagil really brought us together. He's like, but we were also individually very good players. You know, I think that often gets overlooked. Uh, we just kind of group them together and say, okay, you know, there was, because this team was so, you know, willing to, to fight for each other on the pitch that they were so successful. And that certainly holds true, but I don't think you can really get to that level of success at that, you know, in a tournament like that without having quality players on the pitch. And, you know, it was, it was interesting when he said that. And I just started thinking about how I hadn't really thought of the team in that way before. I mean, we kind of give a fleeting thought to, you know, yeah, they were all right players, you know, they were, they were good. Um, but really they, they, they were, and I think it was just a perfect storm, you know, of the perfect coach, the perfect players at the perfect time of their careers, you know, they were all kind of either peaking or in and around that area. And they were good. You look at some of maybe their uh, close control and, and some of the balls they played sometimes in that tournament. And it's really, you know, you, it really makes you think, you know, you look at guys like Saitaridis who were just, you know, they played the tournament of their lives, oh, yeah. um, you know, and, and we, we, it's just something that I, I, when I was researching, you know, in the beginning, I didn't really think about as much. And then he just brought that to the fore. And it's something I always think about now when I, when I look back on that team. And yeah, there, there, were, there were some really, really, really great players. Some of the best maybe in Greek football history, for sure. Of course, there was no doubt that that was a golden generation for Greece, yeah. 100%. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, you, you look at some of the names that preceded them and, you know, they were great players. But I think when maybe we move, you know, through the years uh, and look back on these guys, you know, when it's 20 and 30 years down the road, you know, they, they will stand the test of time. These were, were players that left a legacy. They were players that will be fondly remembered, you know. And I think you mentioned Karagounis at one point before. And in 2004, we weren't maybe all you know, thinking that he was as important as he ended up becoming. And now we look at him and the, you think of the Greek national team, you know, over the last 20, 25 years. And that's the first guy you think of, you know, that, that, that passion, that work rate, the skill, everything that he brought to the team, you know, he's Mr. Ethniki really. So in 2004, maybe we're not thinking of him exactly like that, but now, you know, having hindsight, we, we see that, you know, wow, this, this was a, just an amazing player. And I think that holds true for, for a great deal of those guys. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I barely even, I wasn't even following Greek football, as we alluded to, when this was all happening. But 
the way that I perceive these players is, yeah, legends. Caragonis a legend, all of these players. And I, even though I didn't live through these events, really, I mean, I was four years old and, and toddling around, but I wasn't watching the games. Uh, reading through it was, was really emotional and really interesting for me. Uh, as we're wrapping up, George, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and fielding all our questions. I know we had so much stuff to throw at you here. And uh, I hope it was an enjoyable experience for you to sort of just talk about what a wonderful tournament that was. And I also want to thank you for giving everyone just such a great piece of, of work about this entire tournament and allowing people to really breathe it in. I, to anyone who's watching this, I would really advocate that you go out and get the book. It's, it's a great read, whether you're looking to just reminisce something that you watched at a younger time or whether you're completely unfamiliar with it and just want to hear about an amazing footballing story. It was a special moment in my life as well as well as, a, you know, millions of Greeks around the world. So, um, you know, to, to hear that, that somebody has enjoyed it, it's just, you know, it hits me right in the heart. So I thank you for that. I, I am just honored to have been able to, to come on and, and talk with you. Um, this has been a great experience for me. Um, and it's been highly enjoyable. So yeah, I'm really indebted to you guys for having me on to be able to talk about this. Thank you very much. Oh, anytime, George. It's, it's our pleasure. And uh, we hope that everyone listening enjoyed the, the input. And, you know, obviously there's so much stuff that we didn't get to. So I could go on for days about how cool this book was. And I really enjoyed reading it in preparation for this. And I probably would have, you know, enjoyed it for my pleasure anyways. So uh, amazing job with the entire project and thanks so much for your input folks thank you so much for listening as well especially if you've made it made it this far and we will be back to you this sunday with our next episode featuring bob beans make sure to tune in on friday for olympiacos versus asteras tripolis in the super league match week two i think that's about all we have so until next time we will see you soon